the second part to our discussion with Are about NF-kappa B signaling codons. If you haven't heard the first one, I strongly recommend you to go back and listen to it first. Coming to the next figure, now that we have all this information, how, how can we use this in a disease model? Well, since we have a machine learning classifier, not only can we figure out which stimulus a cell is being given, we can also get information about which stimulus the cell is not relaying properly or miscommunicating, or in other words, getting confused with. For example, a cell may be receiving TNF, but responding as if it was a viral BAMP, like poly-IC, let's say. Possibly, again, due to some abnormal NF-kappa variant, uh, like those occurring in the GWAS studies. As a result, this, communication, this miscommunication could lead to incessant inflammation, and that is the hypothesis that the authors are going with. And to test this hypothesis about the miscommunication of stimulus, the authors bred their MVenusRelA reporter mice with the Sjogren syndrome mouse model that has genetic variants in the regulatory regions of the NF-kappa B uh, regulator I-kappa B alpha, which also has been found in some human patients. So yeah, we got these mutations from human patients into the mice so that these mice develop the disease and they have been crossed with the reporter mice. So some of the progeny from these mice would have Sjogren syndrome and they will also carry the MVenus RelA reporter so that we can do all the dynamic studies again but instead of a wild type or healthy mouse in a Sjogren syndrome mouse model. The authors got bone marrow derived macrophages from these reporter autoimmune mice and stimulated them with different NF-kappa B stimuli to see if they are responding to these stimuli in the similar way as healthy mice. And here is one of the most important parts of the paper if you are looking at the translational capacity. While the predicting algorithm that we described uh, correctly guessed the type of stimulants based on NF-kappa B signaling codons in healthy macrophages, this algorithm couldn't do that in Sjogren syndrome mice derived macrophages. What that means is that the SS macrophages, the disease macrophages were indeed responding differently to these stimuli. To give you some examples, the response to TNF in these, um, in these uh, Sjogren syndrome macrophages looked like an LPS response. And the response to poly-IC looked like a TNF response. Uh, Ade, this is such an exciting finding. You have mapped how PAMP and TNF stimuli response, uh, respond via NF-kappa B occur in macrophages and have shown that these responses get altered in SS mice with NF-kappa B variant. It's like, uh, it's, yeah, there's a lot of miscommunication. So did you guys have a big party when these results came out? No, we did not at that time, but it was very exciting. Uh, we need to do a lot more experiments to confirm. And uh, one of my collaborators, uh, Catherine Shu, uh, did some single cell RNA-seq to confirm the data that we had at the single cell trans uh, at, the, at the single cell signaling level. She used transcriptomics to show that there is also a lot of information. I think when we had that data, we were, we were ready to celebrate. Unfortunately, that was during uh, the middle of the pandemic. But when the but last summer, there was some relaxation of the rules, and we actually did have a party uh, to, to celebrate uh, the paper getting published. So that, that was a, a really exciting uh, finding and development. And I just want to uh, clarify a few things and expand on them. So we talked about ICRB alpha. So the way we get oscillations with NFKRB is through its uh, localization. So when NFKRB is inactive, it's in the cytoplasm. When it's active, it's in the nucleus because it's a transcription factor. It needs to be in the nucleus to be able to uh, make changes. And the way it's kept in the cytoplasm is by binding to I-kappa-B-alpha. So I-kappa-B-alpha and Relay b 50 are bound in the cytoplasm. And when there's a signal from a, a TOLAC receptor or TNF receptor, uh, it leads to IKK activation, I-kappa-B kinase. And then it is a phosphorylation of I-kappa-B-alpha uh, uh, Relay P50 dimers, 
And then that first violation leads to deposition of ubiquitination tags for degradation. So acrobi alpha gets degraded uh, by the proteasome and then NFKB is free to go into the nucleus because its nucleolocalization signal becomes exposed and then induce the uh, transcription of acrobi b alpha mRNA. And then that gets turned into acrobi alpha protein and then acrobi alpha, newly synthesized acrobi alpha protein, literally goes to the nucleus and strips NFKB off the DNA and takes it back into the, into the cytoplasm. And when this is disrupted, you can have different patterns. So when you have a lot of activity going on at the receptor level, you're getting constant degradation of acrobi alpha. So NFKB goes to the nucleus, you get new acrobi alpha, NFKB goes back out and so on and so forth. But if you have so much activity that the new acrobi alpha gets degraded before it gets a chance to go into the nucleus and get NFKB out. So that's, it seems as evolution, evolutionary design to keep NFKB out of the nucleus for a long period of time. Because cells like macrophages are gonna detect TNF a lot of, uh, constantly because macrophages release TNF like sporadically throughout the tissue. And they also sense TNF, obviously. So we, you, there are certain set of, sets of genes you don't want macrophages to produce to uh, stimulate that's occurring all the time, like TNF. So that's, that's what we hypothesize. That's one of the reasons why you have this oscillatory pattern. But what, ha what, ha what happens to be the case is that in this uh, Sjogren syndrome mouse model, there's some deficits in the strength of acrobi alpha uh, synthesis. So the NFKB binding sites at the acrobi alpha promoter, they have mutations in them. So five of the, of the binding sites have mutations in them. So NFKB does not induce acrobi alpha as strongly. So as a result, you don't get this robust oscillations. And uh, human patients have mutations at these uh, promoter sites as well, uh, like we mentioned uh, at the beginning of, of the episode uh, with and uh, that the GWAS studies are revealed and it also was revealed in, in actual individual patients and actually looking at their uh, at the macrophages and actually seeing mutations in those cells. And so that's how you get these patterns. And interestingly, a lot of the genes that regulate the pathogenesis of Sjogren syndrome are genes that regulate the recruitment and retention of T cells into the tissue. And like we mentioned earlier, Sjogren's syndrome is driven by immune destruction of the lacrimal glands and the salivary glands, and T cells are necessary for destruction of those of, of, of those uh, tissue. So when you inappropriately recruit those T cells in the tissue, you get damage. And the genes that control the recruitment of and retention of those T cells inappropriately into the tissue are driven by NF4B. And specifically, the, the pattern, the temporal pattern, the dynamics of NFKB regulate that. Yeah, and we can actually ask the, the machine learning algorithm, basically, can you make a decision based on NFKB activity? So it's basically asking, if you look at NFKB activity, is it TNF or LPS? And the response is yes, which is not very useful, right? So, there are certain genes that should only be in response to a bacterial invasion, right? Because you want the T cells in there to destroy the bacteria or a viral invasion so you can get the T cells in there. But they're getting activated when TNF is around. So there's a confusion that's going on there. It's calling in the inappropriate um, effectors at the inappropriate time. Yeah, it's like I would just compare that to human relationships. Miscommunications can break down relationships. <laughs> and here it's breaking right. down organisms. Right? You should be a therapist. Yeah. It's like communication is key. <laughs> Wait, are you telling me medicine is not therapy? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, are you guys ready to go to the next figure? Yes. Yes. Okay, so one question that comes up, it's like, okay, if NF-kappa B is activating differently, has different activation dynamics, how does that change gene expression kind of down the line? So to answer this question, the authors used single-cell RNA-seq eight hours after stimulation to examine gene expression changes. So what's nice about you know, single-cell RNA-seq is that even though you might not get the depth of bulk RNA-seq, it can delineate populations of cells based on their transcriptional signatures, and you can kind of look at where you know what they tend to look like. 
So what they found was that in healthy macrophages, it was pretty easy to tell which cells had been stimulated with what just based on their transcriptional signature. However, in Sjogren's, those changes were not as obvious, though still somewhat apparent. So what genes specifically were changing? Using ANOVA and calculated channel capacity for each individual gene, they ranked the genes based on their differences in the healthy and the SS macrophages. From this data, the authors found that target genes with long mRNA half-lives really changed based on the stimulus specificity. The authors specifically point out one example, and that's uh, CCL5. So in healthy macrophages, uh, CCL5 expression is more heterogeneous, like you'll have just a couple that have highly upregulated CCL5. But it's expressed highly in most SS macrophages. So that suggests that the SS macrophage uh, expression of CCL5 is less distinguishable depending on the stimulating condition. So now the authors are going to start training that machine learning model. They took the top 100 differentially expressed genes and trained a random forest classifier to predict the ligand uh, based on the top 100 differentially expressed genes. So let's kind of describe what a random forest classifier is. So in simple words, it's like a decision tree that we had talked about before, but instead of looking at one decision tree, we're looking at a lot of decision trees who are fed random pieces of data, and then we ask the trees for a consensus. Very like Lord of the Rings with the ends. Um, it's a democracy, really. Um, <laughs> and I mean, the term forest comes from the fact that there are a lot of decision trees involved. So with the random forest out of the way, let's see what's what's it being used for here. So we tell the random forest program, or they, they told the random forest program what are the top 100 genes and what ligands the cells were treated with for several hundreds or thousands of cells. Then this program learns the relation between those 100 genes and the ligand and tries to predict, based on a new data set, what might have been the initial stimulus out of the five that we're talking about. So this model that the authors trained was able to distinguish the stimuli in healthy macrophages with up to 90% sensitivity. And in machine learning jargon, sensitivity means true positive rate. Um, a 90% sensitivity means out of all the classified data sets, the algorithm classifies 90% of the time correctly. However, this model wasn't as successful when classifying the ligands um, in macrophages from the SS mice. So in simple words, it means that SS macrophages have a different gene signature and they are getting confused with the ligands. It's like the SS macrophages see the TNF, but they respond kind of like it's poly-IC. Interesting, both the healthy and the SS max could differentiate LPS stimulation just fine, but probably because we got some like inter, like talking with the MAP uh, K P38 pathway that provides another way to transcribe an LPS response program. So what I found interesting about this figure was that you took the genes that are more specific in the healthy macrophages than the SS macrophages and used gene ontology to see what kind of genes contributed to the specificity. The terms you found were those associated with the innate immune response and IRF binding motifs. And you were kind of talking about IRF before. How are these genes and their dysregulation playing into the development of disease? And were any of them known drivers of Sjogren's? Thank you. So just to, to clarify, so for the earlier analysis of the machine learning, uh, we used an ensemble of decision trees. And uh, for the single cell RNA-seq, we used random forest. And random force is an ensemble of decision trees as well. So the difference is that with the regular ensemble of decision trees, they use the same, they're required to use the same features, right? And it's like saying, tell me the path to this restaurant, but you have to use, go through all these streets. Mm -hmm. but with random forest, you don't have to use all those streets. So you can take a, a, a different shortcut. You can only go through two streets, for example. So the random forest has a bit more flexibility in it. And uh, there are some pros and cons there. Um, so it's not as useful for delineating the exact path uh, because it's restricted in, in the number of features. Uh, no, there, no, there are no restrictions in the number of features it can use. It can use two or three. So it's hard to really um, evaluate just the importance of the features for evaluating the path to any particular uh, point, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And to go to the second part of that question, IRF uh, transcription factors and NFKB transcription factors that tend to have a lot of combinatorial activity. 
and a lot of the genes that regulate the adaptive immune system uh, have some tendencies to be both uh, uh, IRF uh, inducible and or NFKB inducible. So, you know, genes like interferon beta, for example, is, some, is, a, is a gene like that. And with a lot of the GWAS studies that, that have been done, um, there are a lot of HLA, HLA type genes that have been shown uh, to have some susceptibility for Sjogren syndrome. And there are IRF uh, transfer factors that are also uh, susceptible. So there are IRF induced IRFs, and some of those IRFs are also NFKB inducible. And uh, like IL-12 is, is another example. And uh, some of those require one or the other transcription factor or both. So there are lots of uh, other researchers who are working on delineating that combinatorial control between NFKB and IRF family of transcription factors. Uh, you mentioned CCL5 earlier. CCL5 is one that requires uh, IRF family of transcription factors like IRF3 and NFKB. Uh, TN, TNIP1 is another one, which is an upstream uh, regulator of NFKB as well. Um, TNFAIP3 or A20 is another one. Uh, it's mostly NFKB inducible. Uh, STAT4 is, is one. Uh, there, are, there are a few others, but these are some of the more uh, common ones. Very cool. So in summary from this figure, the specificity of the NF-kappa-B transcriptional program to a particular stimulus is different between healthy and Sjogren's macrophages, suggesting that the disease dysregulates the ability of NF-kappa-B to drive the proper immune response. So moving on to figure six, now the authors have a lot of cool data about the dynamics of NF-kappa-B signaling. So the next question is, what makes these unique codons exist in the cell? So in other words, what is the mechanism? Just like the hardest part, huh? Uh, so we know that once a particular receptor has been stimulated, uh, you've been kind of talking about this before, like we have IKK down the line being activated, which then results in the ubiquitination of I-kappa-B alpha to free NF-kappa B. So now uh, we also know that there's a regulatory loop that I-kappa B alpha is transcribed by NF-kappa B forming a regulatory loop where I-kappa B can downregulate excessive activation of NF-kappa B. So this first experiment focuses on I-kappa B alpha. Now there's a lot of mathematical modeling on in this part, so I'm gonna cut it out for keeping things simple here. The authors found that the oscillatory and non-oscillatory behavior which is summarized by the oscillatory codon that distinguishes TNF and the LPS response, can be controlled merely by the amount of IKK activity over time. Mechanistically, this supports a model in which the signaling mostly depends on the kinetic properties of the molecules involved. For instance, when a cell is stimulated by TNF, the receptor is quickly downregulated, and the ligand, which is TNF, also has a short half-life. Therefore, the IKK activity is more likely to have an oscillatory codon effects as it works in a loop with NF-kappa B and uh, I-kappa B. Another example is that TLR3 is located all the way in the endosome, kind of deep in the cell, so the response speed is not as fast, but its duration can be much longer. So did you see what happened there? Here we have actually a mechanistic explanation for the unique speed and duration codons for TLR3 signaling. Another one is LPS, which shows a combination of that ultra-sensitive and linear dose response behavior with mighty ADA and TRIF adapters, and these can provide the dose-dependent deployment of the total activity codon. In this section, the authors describe how the kinetic characteristics inherent to these signaling pathways explain the nature of the signaling codon observed. Uh, by and large, the authors used verified models to demonstrate how the dynamics of NF-kappa B under different stimuli can be dictated by the kinetics of the stimulating factors. Does that sound all good to you? That sounds uh, pretty good. Uh, I just wanted to mention that a lot of this modeling was done by my uh, co-first doctor, uh, Dr. Brooks Taylor, and it's just an exciting uh, work that he did. Uh, it was a multi-stimulus model. We have different components. Uh, uh, and different modules for the different receptors. And also we have a, the common uh, module, which just looks at the NF-B and acrob alpha negative feedback loop. So there are other acrobies, but he demonstrated that just acrob alpha is sufficient to be able to recapitulate the different oscillatory regimes that we see 
the yeah. low activity, oscillatory activity, and the non-oscillatory activity that we see. And which is really impressive because that means you can just modulate at kappa B alpha to be able to produce these different uh, dynamics. So there are different pathways that converge onto acrobi alpha metabolism. So mm -hmm. the synthesis and it and the translation is translational control through the EIF2 alpha uh, pathway. And there like UV light, for example, can activate GCN2, which can act which can regulate EIF2 alpha to regulate acrobi alpha metabolism. Interferon beta can also converge onto that uh, pathway. And it can also act you can also uh, increase the degradation of acrobi alpha independently of IKK by increasing the red gamma proteins, which are uh, immuno the 11S immunoproteasome cap proteins, which allow for the degradation of newly synthesized ACRB-alpha. So you can see, see that, uh, so uh, interferon gamma, for example, can induce this red gamma proteins, the, the immunoproteasome, which is normally used for destroying intracellular viruses. Uh, so you just you, you you degrade them uh, through the the proteasome. So acrobi alpha is a substrate for this immunoproteasome, which can then push you from this oscillatory regime to this non-oscillatory regime because you're degrading a lot more acrobi alpha. So right. it's really amazing how this modeling work really as recapitulates what we see uh, in vivo. So we can actually do yeah. an experiment in vitro. Uh, sorry, uh, I, I actually in silico. I actually had a question about that. So uh, in this figure, you were able to use your model and kind of verify it um, against experimental data. Um, and in a lot of these types of papers, I see that, you know, that's an important aspect of like these final figures. So what do you think the future of machine learning holds? Do you think it is just a tool for like developing hypotheses? Or do you think that we'll someday use it for modeling more complex behavior without the experimental? Um, edge, I guess. I so uh, I'm just going to make a distinction. So we did uh, statistical modeling and mechanistic modeling. So mm -hmm. with the machine learning, it's a statistical model. Uh, we're looking at the mapping between uh, two variables and we're trying to understand how well we can map them. And with the mechanistic mo uh, model, we're trying to see if the different components, how we can modify them to produce a particular output. So one way that this was very useful for us with the mechanistic uh, math model, which was done by Dr. Brooks-Taylor, uh, was to, we saw that we, there is, the model predicts a lot of, uh, predicts very low oscillations or low activity uh, with CPG stimulation. But in reality, we don't see that level of activity, we actually see more activity than the model predicts. So then we did experiments to see what was going on. And we're going to talk a little uh, bit more about it a little later with the paracrine uh, TNF effect, but that's uh, just a little preview. Uh, but that was something that revealed something that we didn't include in our model. And we, we were able to realize something about the pathway that, you know, really shed a light on how we can produce uh, oscillations in terms of having a mixed signal. Basically, you can have separate uh, different kinds of responders. Which alludes to what we discussed earlier that you have NFKB responding to things that NFKB produces. You know, NFKB mm -hmm. produces TNF, uh, at least the production of TNF, and TNF also activates NFKB. Uh, TLR ligands induce activity, uh, induce NFKB activity to produce TNF, which also activates NFKB activity. So every time you stimulate with a TLR ligand, you're actually getting a mixed response. You're getting a primary responder responding to the TLR ligand, and then you're getting a secondary responder that's only responding to the TNF that's produced in response to the primary ligand. So you actually see oh. a mixed amount. And yeah, it's never a clean reaction, right? It's never a clean <laughs> reaction. So the reason why our model didn't pick up this uh, dual population uh, phenotype because we didn't induce a paracrine effect in there. Yeah. Right? Because we're only looking at single stimulus uh, a, a, a single stimulus at a time, right? So this was able to explain the discrepancy between what we saw. And then we were able to test the hypothesis that it was a paracrine effect that was causing the discrepancy between our model and what we see in reality. So it was what was missing in the model, right? So this is actually very interesting because the positron was discovered because of a discrepancy between a model and reality. 
So it was predicted <laughs> that a positron would exist long before it was actually discovered. So it's really amazing to see the utility of mechanistic models, which can generate hypotheses and really can drive research forward in a number of ways. And one thing that you know we're really interested in working is is really merging the the two statistical modeling and and uh, mechanistic modeling. So we use both approaches here, and there are better ways you can use them to, for, for synergy. Very cool. Thank you. That was a good explanation. This brings us to the last question, and also something that Eddie has spoiled almost. <laughs> yeah, the next question stems from a discrepancy that the authors noticed. If you remember, only the TNF signaling uh, mostly leads to oscillatory behavior, and that's what their model simulations would also predict. However, the authors noticed that there was some delayed oscillatory behavior of NF-kappa B in response to CPG. What's up with that? And note the delayed part. In case you may not know about this, one of the end products of TLR signaling is TNF itself. So what if after the CPG stimulation, there is TNF being made by the cells and it just comes back to the cell, which leads to this oscillatory, delayed oscillatory behavior of NF-kappa B. However, there is a problem with that too. The authors performed flow cytometry to check for the levels of TNF receptor expression and found that CPG treatment itself causes internalization of TNF receptor, therefore rendering the cell blind to TNF. In that case, how do you explain these delayed oscillations if the cell is not responding to TNF? For this, the authors do have a speculation. In a population of macrophages, let's say you have some of these cells that express high levels of TLR9 and the rest express low levels of TLR9. The TLR9 high cells will respond to CPG, produce TNF and will downregulate their own TNF receptor, again rendering themselves blind to TNF. However, on the other side, the TLR9 low cells who are not much responsive to CPG itself would still receive this TNF made by the other set of cells and produce the NF-kappa B oscillatory behavior. And when you look at both of these populations, because as Addis said, they did not know there are possibly heterogeneous populations here. If you look at all this, all both of these populations combined as if they were a single population, you would see both non-oscillatory and oscillatory behavior. But this is because we are in fact looking at two slightly heterogeneous populations of cells where one responds to CPG and the other responds to TNF. This is also an example of the paracrine TNF since the cells who are producing it are not the ones that are signaling through it. Uh, Ed, I have a question here. In vivo, so this is this has been done in vitro, in cultured bone marrow-derived macrophages. But in vivo, there are always going to be mixed signals, right? I don't think any cell will ever just receive CPG or just LPS. It's going to be a mix. So is it possible to generate a model that can distinguish signals in a mix of it? Yes, it's, it's very possible. So the approach that we took uh, to modeling in this paper uh, really lends itself to that. It's a modular approach. So we have receptor proximal modules, which look at each individual uh, receptor uh, independently. And then we have the core module of the Acrobi alpha and it could be negative feedback loop. So to see how we can have multiple ligands, we just have to see how they converge and how they sum together in terms of the modeling approach. And in terms of what we see with the data, giving the insights that we learned about the different strengths of IKK leading to different regimes, uh, you can surmise that high IKK is going to give you non-oscillatory dynamics mm -hmm. and intermediate IKK is going to give you the oscillatory regime. So if you have a ligand that's inducing high activity at the same time as a ligand that's inducing intermediate activity, you're just going to get a higher IKK activity. So it's, it, you're not, you're not gonna, there's no additional regime to get there. Mm -hmm. So I think the interesting thing would be to add two ligands that induce oscillatory dynamics and see how they sum. So then we'd have to test how different TLR ligands sum together. So that's something would, that would be uh, ongoing work to be able to actually test that particular hypothesis. And we can start doing, we can start 
with the model right now. So there are people working in the Hoffman lab who are working on expanding uh, the uh, mechanistic model uh, to really assess that hypothesis. And we have uh, ongoing experiments to, t to uh, examine that. So you're saying you'll have to look at combination effects? To build yeah, so, so we've already done some limited experiments uh, because as you know, with combination, you grow exponentially mm -hmm. uh, with the number of ligands. Uh, and we already know that when you add something like a TNF stimulation to CPG, which is just like CPG already because CPG produces, leads to TNF production, so you're getting a mixed response. So the reason why the primary responders don't really change their activity is because you're getting high AKK activity that leads to non-oscillatory dynamics. So if you're then getting TNF stimulation on top of that, you're just going to get higher IKK activity, right? So the next, the, the test would be really to assess two ligands that induce intermediate IKK activity and see whether there's an additive effect there. And uh, it would be something like TNF and poly-IC at the same time. So that's something that we would have to do mm -hmm. to see how that works out. And uh, it's not just going to be uh, in a simple either. That's a, that's a nice thing with, I guess, with single cells. You can see how the individual cells respond to sort of tease out population effects mm -hmm. from single cell effects. And so you have to do a lot of additional controls to make sure that you're seeing actual um, effects. Hmm. So another thing, I was just wondering because this information is very useful, right? There's, there's, we are literally boiling down these signals to their smallest components. So I was thinking, is there a database that exists where, let's say I perform some experiments on NF-kappa B using a similar model and I look at other ligands. So we could just add all of this information to a database so that maybe 10 years down the line, we have this one giant database that can literally predict what a cell is going through or what all it's receiving. Yeah, that, that, that would be amazing. Uh, and that's a nice thing with uh, mechanistic math modeling in, in the sense that it integrates information that we know. So a lot of parameters that are used for the models are done we, uh, or, tra or fitted to experimental data at the single cell data or, their, or actual uh, bulk measurements, biochemical measurements. So it really just integrates all that history over time. And uh, in terms of the machine learning aspect, that also it, it does that as well. So for example, with the tangerine and orange example that we mentioned earlier, uh, we could ask the the toddler or the machine learning algorithm to predict the family of 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 the of the fruit that they're seeing, right? So it may not the the toddler may not know the difference between tangerine and orange, but it knows that they look similar. They have a rough texture. It's oh, they're citruses, right? So we used a, that approach by categ by categorizing the different ligands about uh, so we use like the source of the ligands as one way to categorize them. So TLR1 and 2, BAM36K, uh, uh, which is a ligand, TLR9 and TLR4 all communicate information that there is a, is a presence of a, of a bacterial pathogen, right? And TLR3 communicates the presence of a viral uh, pathogen. And obviously TNF from, from the neighboring cell or from the same cell. So then we can ask whether or not there are ways of just combining them and see and once you try, we can introduce a new, a new example that hasn't been seen before, a new test case, and then we can assess the probability distribution to see which one is closest. Hmm. So if you add another um, ligand, for example, like, you know TLR7 agonist or TLR8 agonist, the mucomod, then we can ask the algorithm, which of the previous ligands do you think it is? Do you think it's TLR2 ligand? Do you think it's TLR4 ligand, TLR9 ligand, or TLR3 ligand, right? Then we can, we can assess how close it is, right? Because like that toddler, it's, it hasn't learned about tangerines yet. You know, it's only learned about oranges, apples, and bananas. But it's lucky to guess orange, mm -hmm. right? Just based on the characteristics that the toddler knows about the shape and the texture and the color and things like that. So it, it's it's very useful to be able to expand it going forward. And uh, just a, a little preview, we're working on expanding the, the data sets actually. So we're, we're testing more TLR ligands and we're also using polarization conditions. Uh, so, we're doing, so it's a very combinatorial uh, experiment. Uh, so that's gonna be available uh, soon, hopefully. And I think 
we can have the models available and you can use it to generate predictions. And you just don't have the labels of the predictions, you have the uh, probabilities assigned to the example. So when it says uh, it's, it predicts TNF, it has a level of confidence associated with that prediction. Like I'm 80% sure it's TNF, right? Well, or if it sees Imiquamad, it can say, oh, I'm 60% sure it's PolyIC and 20% uh, sure it's you know TNF, right? But because the confidence for PolyIC prediction is higher, then you can, you can really infer that it's thinking it's a viral pathogen, mm -hmm. right? Okay. And Natalie, uh, cool. do you want to take over discussions? Yeah, that just does end uh, the results section for us. Yeah, sure. Uh, so simply put, Ade and his colleagues have identified six words that macrophages use to call up NF-kappa-B genes, which is an important step toward understanding the language that the body uses to fight off threats. In addition, they discovered the incorrect use of two of these words can activate the wrong genes, resulting in or at least contributing to the autoimmune disease known as Sjogren's syndrome. Before we move on to the summary, let's discuss some interesting points here. Uh, some of these we did cover in discussion. So how does this study get us closer to figure out what's going, figuring out what's going wrong in autoimmunity? So we know that some of these words are very important really to communicate effectively about what's going on in the environment, right? So if we, hit, if we lose this particular word, like oscillation, Right, then you can't really distinguish between a ligand that's there all the time, like TNF, and a ligand that's only there when a pathogen is around, right? like poly-IC or LPS. So if you lose that word, what does that mean? You're, you're not quite sure what's going on, and sometimes you just you know, decide to take a risk. You're, the cell is afraid and cause in the big guns, and that can, that can lead to tissue damage. And uh, we know that this oscillation is important. Now, the question is, how? Like how do how does this oscillation lead to this particular phenotype? And uh, luckily, there's another there was another person in the lab, uh, Dr. Quen Cheng, who was leading the charge on that. And uh, that the results from that study got published uh, last year as well. And it's titled uh, "NFKB Dynamics: Determine the Stimulus Specificity of Epigenetic Reprogramming in Macrophages." So that tells there you the you answer yeah. right there. <laughs> It's a. Uh, it was published in Science in uh, 2021, so you can look that up. And the first author is uh, Quen Cheng, uh, C H E N G. So we in that study, just a preview, just in case uh, that person comes on <laughs> to, to the podcast. Uh, just a preview. NFKB oscillations have minimal, induced minimal changes to the epigenome. And non-oscillatory NFKB dynamics induce more permanent changes to the epigenome or longer lasting changes to the epigenome. So there is more chromatin opening when NFKB, uh, when NFKB dynamics are non-oscillatory. And those openings, some of those openings persist long after uh, the ligand has been washed out. And the selection of new enhancers at those areas of open chromatin. So this suggests that non-oscillatory dynamics can actually change the identity of the macrophages because the enhancers open up a whole new subset of genes that the macrophage can then express. Mm -hmm. So we know there are different subsets of macrophages that produce different phenotypes. There are ones that are that reduce inflammation, there are ones that promote inflammation. There are ones that are geared towards fighting viruses. There are ones that are geared towards fighting parasites and so on. And the finding uh, from Dr. Chang's work uh, shows that non-oscillatory dynamics changes, reprograms macrophages. So this tells us that this might have some implications in the pathogenesis of autoimmune disorders. Wow. And Very also, cool. uh, I was just imagining this in my head that you have this oscillatory NF-kappa-B and it's trying to open up the chromatin in the nucleus, but it's not able to stay in the nucleus for long enough right. to do that. Right. <laughs> it's like yeah, you're trying to watch a movie, it's being but kicked you out. kicked yeah. out. Yeah, you get keep getting kicked <laughs> out. And not an oscillatory one, well, it's got all the single strand to stay there and pull that those two strands apart. <laughs> or no, I mean, the right. not the strands apart. <laughs> the coil that is, is loosened up the coil. 
which is, I think it's also interesting. It's like if it stays there long enough, does it find a binding partner? Mm -hmm. And what kind of, what, which type of binding partner? So there seems to be some time, consecutive time, it has to be in there to get some level of activation going. And uh, just my speculation is that it might have to do with finding a binding partner. It needs to be there long enough. Hmm. Uh, to, to Yeah, and probably on. who you find too. Exactly. Exactly. Because yeah. you have all the transcription factors that are getting induced at the same time. And we talked about earlier, we have multiple ligands. You're not just going to have CPG or uh, in the area. You're going to have other ligands as well. You're going to have other cytokines that induce different pathways that are going to be present at the same time. And there might be oscillations in some other signaling pathways that may have to coincide, right? The peaks may have to coincide to have a particular effect. That's not known at this point. What we do know is just NFKB activity alone is sufficient to produce this. And in this uh, amazing work, uh, Dr. Cheng et al. and Dr. Uh, uh, Sho Ota uh, showed that we actually see this particular phenotype when you knock out IRF3 and highest GF3. So we actually don't need the IRF family of transcription factors, at least IRF3, to actually see this effect uh, of uh, chromatin remodeling with NFKB dynamics. Cool. So it appears that, that NFKB dynamics alone is sufficient for that. So it'll be interesting to see how, how uh, those combinatorial dynamics really interact uh, with the uh, temporal dynamics. Very cool. All right. Um... Then I guess you covered future research uh, directions. And I guess one more is uh, NF-kappa B signals also lie downstream of lymphocyte receptor pathways. So do you have an idea about how those signals are different? Yeah, I was thinking like, would you expect similar codons to exist in a, a non-macrophage cell? Like a T cell? Yes. And so I have tested uh, fibroblasts directly. And uh, I do see different patterns. Mm -hmm. uh, we see oscillations in response to IL-1 stimulation and also in response to TNF stimulation. Cool. And um, with transfected poly-IC, which does not uh, induce TLR3, but uh, Regai, uh, that produces a different dynamic. And um, I have also tested C2, C12 uh, muscle cells, uh, muscle mm -hmm. cell line. And we see oscillations there. Um, I've tested GMCSF, uh, uh, not just dendritic cells, and uh, we see oscillations there as well. Uh, I tried FLT3, but that was a, a bit more difficult to establish uh, because uh, they don't adhere as well as uh, GM, GM, GMCSF uh, dendritic cells. And in terms of uh, lymphocytes, it's a bit tricky with lymphocytes because they have yeah. different heterodimers. So earlier in the podcast, I mentioned uh, different uh, families of NFKB transcription factors. There's RELA, there's RELB, there's CREL, mm -hmm. P50, and P52. And there's you know, 15 possible dimers that have been, um, that are possible. And it, here we're looking at RELA, P50 uh, heterodimers. Uh, in Lymphocytes, CREL plays a, a big role as well. And in dendritic cells, RELB also plays a role. And that has other um, effects. That's And the work on that is ongoing as well. So it gets a little bit tricky. You have to be able to make other um, cell... Uh, you have to be able to have uh, other reporters to be able to assess that in, in, in lymphocytes. You have to do a CREL, uh, MVNIS, mm -hmm. or... or um, reporter mouse to really assess that directly or RELB uh, reporter mouse to assess that. Jatin, why don't you just scoop that? Yeah, I'm going. I'm just ordering, you You guys don't know, but I've already ordered five reporter mice in this time. He's <laughs> <laughs> got the, the Jackson Colony website yeah. up on his uh, laptop. <laughs> if you can get the cells to adhere, you have a very nice experimental system going. Very nice. Well, let's go. Let's go to summary. Yeah. So, let's summarize all of this. What if somebody did not 
concentrate all this time? What are they missing? Well, here are the points that you need to take home. This work has identified six dynamical features or words or the language or this signaling codons that characterize the complex stimulus-specific time course trajectories of NF-kappa B activities in single primary macrophage cells. And these codons are the speed of activation, again, all in respect to NF-kappa B, second, the peak amplitude, third, cumulative activity at a later time point, fourth, oscillatory or non-oscillatory behavior, fifth, the total duration of NF-kappa B activity above a threshold, and sixth, degree to which NF-kappa B is distributed towards the early, I mean, activation is distributed towards early versus later time points. Again, then, using information theoretic and machine learning approaches, this work illustrates the function that these codons function as code words to convey information about the extracellular environment to nuclear target genes. And the last point here, actually not the last point, in an inflammatory disease mouse model, diminished ligand-specific deployment of two signaling codons, that is oscillation and duration, results in greater confusion of ligand sensing and diminished stimulus specificity in gene expression that may contribute to the pathology. And the investigation of the molecular mechanisms underlying the stimulus-specific generation of NF-kappa B signaling codons show these simple circuits motifs. For example, that circuits includes IKK and IKB and they cause the existence of these specific codons. So overall, this was a crazy paper. And <laughs> I'm just I'm just so glad that we had Ada here with us to guide us through this because I'm sure like we said 50% of things that were completely <laughs> inaccurate. <laughs> but no, you guys did great. Yeah. It, like with Addy here, I'm confident that even if I'm understanding this paper wrong, I have somebody to correct me, and that's <laughs> a big relief. <laughs> I'm happy to be here to really you know, explain the the findings and make make sure that it can be appreciated by you know wider audience. Yeah, in this, I think as in I've been a cell signaling enthusiast since my undergrad days, and I, I'd say one thing I have. I can categorically say is the brain of the cell is not the nucleus. It's all the signaling networks that exist. They are indeed telling the cell what to do, how to respond. Nucleus is just there as a providing the template for things to make. Right, exactly. It's just like in neurons, a lot of computations happen at, a dendri at the dendrites mm -hmm. and at the axons, right? You have to get the summation uh, of signals mm -hmm. and then you have to get the propagation through the axons and, and a release. It's all part of the you know, integrated circuits, so to speak. There are different aspects there. So it's not just the nucleus. There's a variety of different summation and uh, approximation that happens. Like exam another example is with these, you know, sensory system with the eyes, right? You have a way of discretizing uh, the different light waves into yeah. specific categories with the cones. And some people don't have as many cones. So they, if you have three cones, you can distinguish three colors very well. Right, and you just took a whole continuous wavelength into three categories, right? Mm -hmm. And then some people can only de detect two, mm -hmm. uh, you know, sets of colors, right? You know, dichromats. Uh, their world, they have a, a smaller channel capacity in mm -hmm. that sense because they can distinguish between different colors really well. And some people are quadrichromats, I guess. They can detect four colors and they can see things that they can distinguish between things that the rest of us can't. And there's a lot of integration that happens there and at different uh, levels, uh, additional processing happens throughout the pathway before you even get uh, to the brain, so to speak, you know, to, to the visual cortex in the back of the brain. Right. So it's really, I really like that analogy that you used, uh, team. Yeah. I think channel capacity is another thing I'm not <laughs> going to forget after this discussion. <laughs> it's like <Because> bandwidth. <laughs> bandwidth, the information between two variables. Uh, also, since we have a podcast on Spotify, I think it's mandatory that I tell talk about my conspiracy theory. So I'll tell you guys about my conspiracy theory. I think based on all the complications a living cell has, the, the magnitude of complexity, I feel like there is no way something like this emerged spontaneously. I feel like it's been built. We just don't know who built us, but there is no way this comes around spontaneously. What? 
did, how do you didn't, like my conspiracy theories? Well, I mean, didn't it take like <laughs> however long? There's like I, I don't know. There's a whole book about it by this Darwin guy. Um, I don't know if you have heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, you know, it's funny. It's what's the uh, second most common cause of the cold of the of the of, the, of, what's that? of colds of the common cold? What is it? Oh, coronavirus. Oh, <laughs> different coronavirus. Different coronavirus. It's, right? Yeah, it's the same family, but the SARS-CoV-2 is uh, the nice. uh, rebellious cousin, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, and uh, apparently TLR three might recognize uh, COVID. Oh, so uh, it'd be interesting to to uh, do some follow up experiments on that to see if NFKB dynamics have uh, anything to do with the responses. Well, you just and, added uh, another paper for me to scoop. Thanks. Yeah. Aging plays a role too, right? Why is it older people? Yeah, who tend to have a more exuberant inflammatory response, whereas younger children. They hardly get any adverse reactions to exposure to the virus. Could it be that their adaptive immune system hasn't gotten robust yet? Their T cells are still maturing, and that affects this uh, the cytokine milieu. Oh, that's that another podcast entirely. <laughs> Potentially, yeah. Like, oh, there's, no. a, there's a lot of as in there is a contribution here. of the uh, the biological sex because males get a more higher inflammatory response than females in that way and i guess yeah there's uh, so many variables damn it yeah and uh, that is a higher genetic predisposition to a lot of autoimmune disorders in women oh dude mm-hmm. yeah there's there's a yeah. lot of cool papers and about that the, it's, it's exciting all right so this would be a good point to end our discussion thanks a lot ade for joining us today thanks for having me it's been a pleasure yeah, and thanks, Natalie, for this wonderful discussion. For our audience, if you are interested to know more about our science communication endeavors, please check out antibodies.org. You can find our blogs, journal clubs, and podcasts there. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can email us at antibodies1 at gmail.com. With that, I'm your host, Jatin Sharma, signing off until we meet again. Bye-bye. <laughs>